Hello, this is Bob Groves, and welcome again to our Provost podcast series that we call Faculty and Research. I'm really happy this week to welcome Professor Scott Taylor, who is Vice Dean for Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion at the School of Foreign Service. We'll have more to say about that. He's also the former director of the African Studies Program. Scott's research and teaching interests lie in the areas of African politics and political economy. He has a special emphasis on business state relations, private sector development, governance, and political and economic reform. His articles have appeared in a number of political science and area studies journals. He's also the author of four books, all of which are focused on the kinds of issues that I mentioned. Scott has served as a consultant for numerous organizations, including USAID, the African Development Bank, the World Bank, and the Carter Center. He's lived in both Zambia and Zimbabwe, and he's traveled widely throughout the African continent. He's also served as an election observer in a number of African countries, including Zambia, Zimbabwe, Nigeria, Mozambique, Ghana, Kenya, and Liberia. And he's a member of the board of directors of the National Endowment for Democracy. Well, Scott, thank you so much for joining us today. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here, Bob. I'd love to start with you telling us about your new job as a vice dean within the School of Foreign Service. So what are you doing there? <laughs> changing the world, changing the world. So it's not actually that new. With COVID, I've actually been here for a year. It's hard to believe. It's 13 months of university administration. I was looking at your world from the outside. It's a very different view from inside of it. I was brought in as our inaugural vice dean for diversity, equity, and inclusion, really to address three areas of emphasis, and they are broad. One is to help oversee a reform of the SFS curriculum, which, as many of our administrative leaders will tell you, has not seen a great deal of reform in many years, but particularly to try to address issues of inclusion and diversity of both perspectives and voices and authorship in our courses and our syllabi, but really in terms of our core curriculum too, and taking a look at what needs to be reformed, expanded, not to eliminate the classics or the great masters, but rather to provide space for other perspectives. So the other C is community and really trying to examine how we become a bigger and more diverse community, whether it's ethnically, racially, first gen, those who served in the military and so on, in areas where our community has historically been rather narrow. So that's the diversity perspective and to try to address what are we doing at admissions? What are we doing at, you know, with our graduate programs? What are we doing in terms of attracting a more diverse cohort of undergraduate students to the SFS? And so we're engaged in a number of pipeline development issues to develop the next generation of undergraduate international affairs students to come to SFS, but also to help to better cultivate and attract those who are already have an interest in international affairs to our master's programs. That's a, obviously a long tail set of objectives, right? It takes many years to get those in place. And then the final C's of my three C's is climate. The university did uh, obviously this major climate survey last year. The results were very mixed, particularly for students of color and, and how comfortable they feel at Georgetown. While it's difficult 
to kind of parse some of that data at the level of the school because of the surveys, the sample size. We're seeing some interesting results within the school, but it, all of it shows us that we really have to do better in terms of creating a more nurturing environment, a more welcoming environment, a, a more supportive environment, not just for students of color, but from students from a variety of diverse backgrounds. You know, the university has done a lot to be sure, but there's always more to do in terms of making this a safer place and a more comfortable place for our students, but also for our faculty and staff. And so we're engaging in a lot of training issues and trying to, to educate even some faculty members about issues like microaggressions and things like that, that we now know can be very damaging to climate. And so we are addressing those. And, I, and I'm delighted. I mean, I should add this, that there's a really strong wind behind us in the SFS. And there's a tremendous amount of enthusiasm among staff, faculty, and students. I'm working with them every day. I've had nothing but, you know, wonderful support and partners in this effort, uh, support from Dean Hellman. So, you know, I couldn't be happier with the resources and the community that I have to do this work. I heard about a really cool program related to that, that the school is working on for high school students in the area. Is that something connected to your work? Absolutely. It's so important to reach, especially high school kids, or even possibly before, and nurture those interests in international affairs to get a broader perspectives. And so we developed basically a fellowship program and to partner with local high schools in the D.C. metro area to bring it to provide support for students to participate in our summer international relations academies, which are administered, of course, by the School of Continuing Studies, but have long been led by my fantastic colleague, Tony Aaron. For high school kids, he, Tony's done this for 30 years, but we've never been very intentional about our own backyard and about cultivating relationships with D.C. area high schools, particularly in the, you know, in the outer wards. And to try to bring kids, they've heard of Georgetown, of course, but they may never have visited our campus. They don't know what's what's happening here. They don't know what, what the School of Foreign Service is all about. And they think, they think it's solely for trained diplomats. So we have created a program that enables kids from the area to get introduced to international relations and international affairs topics through one of the very best that we have at Georgetown, Tony Aaron. And it was fabulous. And we brought the kids on campus at the end for reception. Of course, this summer, the inaugural summer was remote, but we were able to bring them to campus for an outdoor, socially distanced reception at the end and really sort of welcome them to the campus. And we haven't yet seen the fruits of this labor in terms of applications to the SFS, but I'm quite confident that over time, if we can continue to build pipelines and partnerships locally, we'll see applications from a lot of these great local kids really increase. I'm excited about that. Absolutely. Really cool. So this is a perfect segue. How did you get into this business? Do you remember the first time where these kind of academic interests you pursued in your career, the first spark? When did it happen? <laughs> the first spark. When I graduated college, I was like many students, fairly indebted. <laughs> And at that time, when I finished in the 1980s, the corporate recruiters were mostly from the banking world. And the allure of the banking sector, the allure of Wall Street, particularly in the 1980s, was irresistible. Coupled with my debt load, it looked like a very appealing option for me. So I actually spent four years in corporate banking on Wall Street, where I engaged in a very intensive one-year training program in the, as part of that, which was 
basically like half an MBA with the finance and accounting courses, money and banking courses, a lot of curriculum taught by NYU professors. But after four years, I really got tired of being on the street and that kind of work, which to me wasn't very fulfilling intellectually or personally. And so I knew having studied Africa somewhat as an undergraduate and having studied in Kenya as an undergraduate, I was always intrigued by returning to the continent in some way. And I, that fascination was always there. And I had been introduced to African politics as an undergraduate studying in an authoritarian Kenya, a very closed and in many cases, brutal system. So when I thought about graduate school and what I wanted to do, it became a kind of amalgam of these two things, my kind of business training and interest that had Although I found the work of banking boring, this, some of the stuff of business and understanding, you know, balance sheets and understanding how corporations succeed or fail was always intriguing to me, as was the African interest. And I was able to kind of marry these two things into a research on business in the African context in a transitional, politically and economically transitional context by the time I went back to school in 1991. I wanted to be able to further that sort of intellectual passion about Africa, even if it wasn't completely defined at that point. And I wondered about these questions of, the, in 1990 and 1991 was this time of huge change in sub-Saharan Africa. The Huntingtonian third wave had hit the continent and we started to see these political and economic transitions taking place one after the other very, very rapidly. And I was fascinated by that change. And I was particularly fascinated by, in certain countries and places, like the role that business was playing in kind of funding some of these transitions. These are very small hard put hard by business communities and so on. And so I thought that the way to kind of get at some of those issues and questions and really try to understand the relationship between these nascent private sector actors and these nascent sort of political movements towards more inclusive politics. That's what inspired me to get into the research and to really to go back to graduate school. And I, I was really privileged to work with one scholar of African elections and democratization and politics, Richard Joseph, and another scholar of business state relations, albeit in East Asia, Richard Donor. So you know, again, my advisors, my career, and my interests all came together in these two spheres. If I get your personal history right, you did a couple of years at Smith as a lecturer, and then you joined Georgetown as an assistant professor. So one of the things I often encounter with young newly minted PhDs is juggling all the stuff one has to do as a tenure line faculty member. What are your memories of those years and how you worked it out for yourself to survive and thrive? I've tried to erase those memories. <laughs> <laughs> it's such a difficult and challenging, but really exciting time to be an assistant professor and to be in your in your first job. There's so much to absorb. I had the advantage coming to Georgetown. I basically did the warm-up act at Smith, at two years of teaching and writing up there. Well, it was a, basically a term appointment initially that evolved into a tenure track role. But when the opportunity came to come to Georgetown, it was irresistible to come. And, and I have said it quite sincerely to people that the second best place in the world to study Africa is, other than the continent itself, is here in D.C. It was a huge opportunity and a great university. So I jumped at the chance to come down here. But the bar was considerably higher when I arrived at Georgetown. And the pressure cooker atmosphere of being an assistant professor was very much more keenly felt. 
quote. So, I mean, just kind of coping with it. If you can pace yourself, there's a lot of pressure to say, I've got to do everything at once. And, and I've got to get so many articles done or manuscripts written and so on. And, and we can drive ourselves insane with that. One thing that worked for me was just kind of, it wasn't slow, I don't think, but it was just sort of a deliberate kind of pacing of my work and of the projects and seeing them and allowing them to evolve. I had a, a great opportunity to be in Norway for six months at the Christian Mickelson Institute as a research fellow there and being able to get out of the pressure cooker environment of being an assistant professor and just kind of focus on writing and research in Norway during the summer months when it doesn't get dark at all <laughs> um, was, you know, allowed me to be incredibly productive. I mean, it was a huge privilege to be able to do that, you know, just kind of get Getting that space. So if junior colleagues, if they have an opportunity to get a fellowship or some kind of research opportunity that takes them out of the daily grind of the university, that's huge. I think it's demonstrated that it's hugely beneficial to junior colleagues, especially indeed to all of us. So, you know, that was a real great opportunity. And then for me, my entire uh, professional life, at least as an academic, my ritual have finished a big project, whether it's a, especially a book or when I finished my dissertation, I do something physical. I like to do, to build things. At Smith, I finished my dissertation and I built a house. Um, <laughs> literally, you know, when I finished my first book, I like put a deck on our house, you know, and things like, just do something that's productive, but a different kind of productivity. Uh -huh. It's amazingly cathartic and mind clearing and sort of allows you to concentrate on other skills. And then, you know, after a few weeks of doing that or whatever, you return to the intellectual pursuits. And I find that it's just completely refreshed and re-energized and can dive right back into the research. I don't know that everyone can get a house to, you know, to, or something to do like that, but just some kind of a, you know, exercise your creative side, I think keeps us all in good balance. It's told that Einstein got many of his great insights while he was playing a violin. And it would just stop and it all came together. And there seems to be something there. Absolutely. I think we have to use all parts of our brain and our the skills or the gifts that we have. Otherwise, you can't be a one-trick pony, in my view. Yeah. And I, I think that it works. Speaking of one-trick pony, you both write peer-reviewed journal articles and books at the same time. Not everyone does that. How do you choose when something is a potential book versus some idea or some question is best answered with a shorter piece? I think the research chooses that for us. There have been a number of interesting sort of articles that have been interesting to pursue, and there are narrow questions that warrant being answered. And then you discover, after you've written the piece, there's really not a lot of additional directions you can take this. And so it just can sort of rest on its own. You've answered you know, whatever research question you set out to answer or have provided at least as much support for it as you can. To me, it's always been like the piece determines itself. And sometimes you don't know that ex ante. Going in, it's hard to tell how a particular project is going to evolve and where it's going to go and whether you're going to find, you know, the adequate data to support a larger expansion of this. Or, you know, in my case, it relies tremendously on a lot of field work, whether there's time to kind of engage in that larger field research that's required to build out a project. So I think it kind of determines itself. 
that being said, although in political science, there are plenty of political scientists who eschew book writing nowadays and are brilliant scholars. And so I have found that, you know, writing books enables me to sort of really engage with larger questions or sets of questions and different ideas by definition, a much more fulsome kind of way. And and I find that really fulfilling to sort of take a project from start to finish. It might take several years, but I have found that once you kind of learn how to write a book, it's not as daunting as it seems. Looking back at earlier points in your career, do you think you've gotten better at identifying when a research question is really worth inquiry? Do you look back on things where gee, I I probably wasted my time on a question that either wasn't really important to answer or was just impossible to answer. And now I'm better. I've done that a number of times. There are some... I moved to offices just a few weeks ago and found a number of those projects that <laughs> <laughs> I said, what? I don't even remember this one, right? You know, it may have evolved to a paper or a manuscript. So that happens. But you ask, have I gotten better at sort of identifying the ones that aren't going to pan out? The answer is no, I don't think I have. But at the same time, as I looked at these boxes of past research that, that weren't taken to their fullest extent or maybe even their fullest potential, I learned something. The problem process of research, the process of thinking through problems is edifying. We depend on publishing it, on sharing it with the world. Most of this stuff I've shared in some context or other, whether it's with even the stuff that's not published, whether it's at conferences or whether it's with my students in the context of courses. So it does have a public life, even if it's not in the published form and even if it's not fully formed. But most importantly for that work, I've benefited from it. I've increased my knowledge. I've learned improved research skills, but I've also amassed additional information and insights that I didn't have before into a variety of areas. So I I actually cherish that experience. So I haven't really gotten better at it over time, but I don't look at it as wasted effort. Our students are often interested in how we actually work, I think. And when things are really going well, you're self-assessing that, boy, this is a really productive period. What's your day like when you're doing that? When you're in the middle of an exciting research project, whether it's an article or a book, or whether your objective is an article or a book. And I think this is probably true for everyone. You eat, drink, and sleep that work. You know, you go to bed thinking about it, and you wake up in the morning thinking about what you're going to write or what you need to do. You know, I keep a notepad by my bed in case I wake up in the middle of the night to jot down an idea that came to me in a dreamlike state. It's best, in my view, if you can, especially if you have a, a big project like a book. I know there are colleagues of ours that talk about a little bit each day and sort of, you know, writing every day. And I agree that that's important, but acknowledge that my style is if I can really plug into a project on an almost full-time basis, I'm much better off. If I can give something my undivided attention for whatever the period is. So, but I think for all of us, whether you're a a day-by-day writer or whether you're what some people call a binge writer, you just, you're thinking it all the time. And it's not a an obsession that is troubling. I mean, if you like research and you like what you're doing and you're fascinated by these the big questions of whatever your subject area is, it's popping all the time. And again, I think I find that it's exhilarating, really. Maybe a little geeky, but <laughs> it's also really exciting. In your career, you've filled institutional roles. You're filling one now as a vice dean. Not all of our colleagues have made judgment that that's a good use of their time and 
you know, if you talk to journal editors these days, just getting peer reviewers to help that process, doing a review of a manuscript is getting harder and harder. Why do you do it? You know, why spend your time on this sort of institutional work as opposed to just your academic work? I think it's important. You know, one of the most attractive things about the university, and maybe it sounds a little treacly, um, but it is about the community, about institution building. And my mantra throughout my life has been, leave it better than you found it. And I feel like that's a responsibility. So that's why, you know, I served as director for, of African studies for as long as I did. I like to think I left that unit you know, in better shape than it was when I inherited it. Although, you know, my predecessor did a great job and I think I was able to take it forward with tremendous cooperation and help from colleagues, of course. But in this role, it's also deeply personal for me. And yes, it is disruptive to my research agenda. I just, there's just not enough hours in the day to do as much as I would like. And my book project is on capitalist development and big business in Africa is moving much more slowly than I would have liked, in part because of the administrative roles. I do it because, especially this job as the Vice Dean for Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion, I was one of the advocates for a more robust engagement of DEI issues from the School of Foreign Service, from Georgetown. How hypocritical would it have been for me when I was asked to be a part of leading that effort to say, no, get somebody else. My framework of my thinking just simply doesn't accommodate that kind of rejection of both the opportunity and the obligation. So that's why I do it. Although I will say I, I am looking forward to one day getting wholly back to research, but that day will come soon enough. But you know, for now, I'm gratified to be able to try to help make this institution better. Well, Scott Taylor, I can't imagine a better way to end our little conversation. And I'm very confident on behalf of all my colleagues, your colleagues, uh, we thank you for your willingness to step up on this. And it was fascinating to hear how you think through your various pieces of your life here at Georgetown. Thank you for joining us. Thank you, Bob. Thanks for having me.